Observatörerna. Det är de som i ett allt mer byråkratiserat och svårmanövrerat samhälle gör tidningen till det viktigaste vapnet mot förstelning och maktmissbruk. Som tar upp kanten mot det som tycks dumt, gement och vrångt. Välkomna till Arena Tekonomi som idag gör ett extra avsnitt i intervjuform. Vi spelar in fredagen den 26 april. Jag heter Elsa Persson och jag har med mig en gäst här som är på Sverigebesök tillfälligt som heter Anne Pettifor. Jag kommer strax gå över till engelska och vi kommer göra en intervju på engelska. Men om ni föredrar svenska kommer den här intervjun att finnas i skriftlig form senare på dagens Arenas sajt. Uh, so welcome and Petifor. Thank you very much. Nice to have you here. Uh, I will try to introduce you shortly and then I will yeah. let you continue <laughs> to yeah. present yourself. You are a political economist. Yes. Uh, you are known for having predicted the global financial crisis in yeah. a book from 2006. Yeah. Um, you are based in London and you are currently, with other things, you are working with the British Labour Party as an yes. economic advisor. Uh, and now you're here in Sweden for a few days because uh, your latest book is uh, re- uh, released now in Swedish. It's called uh, Produktionen av pengar, så bryter vi storbankernas makt, the title of the book in Swedish. Yeah, yeah this was part of your CV. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you uh, ended up as a critic and uh, someone who is working with the current financial system and yes. economic policy. So I was uh, I led a campaign in Britain Jubilee 2000 in the late 90s uh, for the cancellation of the debts of the poorest countries. And so I was very concerned. I've come from Africa originally about the fact that countries had very high levels of debt which weren't repayable. And we succeeded in persuading the IMF, the World Bank and Paris Club creditors to write off in nominal terms about $100 billion of debt owed by 35 of the poorest countries. Um, And at the end of that, I went to the New Economics Foundation to try and understand why it was that countries had got into high levels of debt after the 1970s, whereas before they hadn't had that sort of foreign debt. And that's when I began to look into the international financial architecture and also into the way in which the financial system had been deregulated and had begun to create enormous volumes of credit, both uh, sovereign debt, sovereign credit, but also private credit. So um, so that's my background. And, and trying to understand that, that's when I realized, well, number one, you have to understand the nature of money. And, and I found it very hard to find the economics textbooks that would explain money to me. They explained that banks were intermediaries between savers and borrowers. But where did the money come from originally? And that's when I had to delve. And of course, we've known this for a long time, since the 1700s. But um, And there have been economists like Schumpeter and Keynes that have understood the nature of money. But it's knowledge that we 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 remember and then we forget or we lose and we gain. And so I had to regain an understanding of the nature of money. Yeah. And are you in um, in some, pol- um, how do you say, academic context today, like researching in the, the classic uh, no. economist? Uh, no, um, on the contrary. I'm... Um, In that sense, I'm self-taught uh, because actually, uh, you know, I lived uh, my. Exp- I learned on the job on the 
on when I was working on the sovereign debt, not just of those 35 countries, but then I worked as an advisor to the Nigerian government. So I learned from there, and then I spent three years at the New Economics Foundation. So now I'm not an academic. I should be retired. I should be looking after my grandchildren. But because I published a book in 2006 called The Coming First World Debt Crisis, I'm regarded as one of the few that predicted the crisis. And so after that, I became more busy than I had been before that. I became busier than I'd been before that, and uh, I'm still busy. So um, so it's, it, it's, if you like, on-the-job experience. So let's um, just um, go back to this uh, book that you wrote in 2006. Could you tell us this prediction of the financial crisis? Uh, how did you come to to predict this and, and yeah based on what and so I had been working on the debts of the poorest countries um, and I had been looking at the ratio of their income to their debt and when you look at the ratio you can see whether or not that debt is repayable and if the ratio say is very high if the debt ratio is very high then it's pretty clear that the debt is not going to be repaid And and then, of course, I understood the other economic circumstances of those countries and that, therefore, their ability to repay in hard currency debts that were, if you like, escalating over time, uh, mainly because of uh, compound interest. Uh, that's when we argued. So I worried about that. And then I looked up at the debt ratio of the Anglo-American economies and I realized, actually, that debt ratio was much worse than it was for the poor countries. And therefore, the possibility of crisis in Anglo-American economies was very, very high. And I, this was my analysis. And I have to say that I wasn't alone in this. Um, the chief economist at the Bank for International Settlements shared our concern about the the very high level of debt there was. But But he was under terrific pressure for, you know, his for his reports in which he warned of the volatility of the system and the risks to the system. And there were other economists who also, and there were also some speculators, notably at Goldman Sachs, who also realized the system would crash and bet against that happening. But on the whole, so I wasn't alone in my predictions, and I learned from these other economists as well. But because there was such euphoria And because so many people were making so much money at the peak of the financial crisis, uh, we were ignored and treated with a little bit of contempt. And I was told that I was like chicken licking, arguing that the sky is falling. It's an English fairy tale of, uh, for children. Um, and so when I wrote about it in advance of my book, um, I just was dismissed, really. Um, and then uh, then the publisher insisted on calling the book The Coming First World Debt Crisis. And I argued that it was going to be published in October 2006 and that if she put the words The Coming First World Debt Crisis into it, it would be out of date by then. And I was very upset about that. In fact, I was wrong, which I think shows that you can analytically say the system is, is going to uh, crash, but to time it... Is the is the real skill, and I I I got my timing wrong. Hmm. It so, actually took longer to crash than I thought it would. Yeah, but did you? In how concretely did you um, predict it? Did you know there was going to be a global crisis to start in the U.S.? How yeah? How specific were you your prediction? So I I I I did not know what the trigger would be, and I suggested a range of triggers. One of them was I remember saying that I thought the oil price might rise too much and then it would become too expensive for people for countries to import oil and that might be a trigger. I I 
I wasn't sure. I did not know. Uh, but I did know was that the imbalances were in the Anglo-American economies. I was very struck that in some European economies, there wasn't such an imbalance in the sense of very high levels of private debt. But there was definitely imbalances in the Anglo-American economies, not just Britain and the United States, but also Australia and so on. So it was about understanding the structural imbalances. What I can't say I got right and what I can't get right now is, A, what the trigger will be, because sometimes it's very difficult to predict what will be a trigger. In the case, nobody expected the subprime mortgage crisis to be the trigger, Um, and I certainly didn't. And also the timing is very difficult to get right. But if you know the system is out of balance and you're a central banker or a regulator or a politician, you really ought to put your mind to what to do to restore the balance. Mm. Um, and if we are to talk about your new book, um, yeah. can you can you tell a bit about what is what is this about and uh, yeah. yeah, what is the message? Thank you. Yes. No. So back in 2008, um, in the winter of 2007-8, a friend of mine, a couple of friends of mine, including Caroline Lucas, uh, who at the time was the only green MEP in Britain, uh, we gathered in the evenings in my apartment and we drafted something that we called the Green New Deal. Um, The name Green New Deal had already been uh, thought of by Thomas Friedman, who's a journalist on the New York Times. But we decided to write a report which would say this is what we need to do to address the climate crisis. And the report got some... Uh, circulation and it was adopted by Gordon Brown who said yes we need a Green New Deal Uh, the the European Greens picked it up Um, Obama, President Obama included the concept of a Green New Deal in his uh, presidential manifesto but the idea faded quite quickly because of the layman's bankruptcy and the huge crash that followed after that and our work was eclipsed And then now recently, uh, the young American woman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has just recently been elected as the Democrat representative for a New York seat, um, raised the Green New Deal together with a grassroots movement called the Sunrise Movement in the United States. And that's given it enormous profile. And now there's a lot of debate. So my new book is going to be about how to finance the Green New Deal. How can we find the money to transform our economy, but also our ecosystem, to make both our ecosystem and our economy more stable? That's what it's about. Yes. Um, Okay. Um, I was um, also going to talk about this, but also about this book that that just came out in Sweden. Yeah. So could you just, while we are talking about the Green New Deal, just shortly explain like what what is the basic idea of... uh, So the um, the book that's just appeared in Swedish is The Production of Money. And this comes out of my experience of trying to understand how money is produced, where it comes from, and how it's managed or not managed. And so what it explains is that all money begins its existence as credit. And um, uh, uh, as a result, and it, and the commercial banking system plus the central banking system working with other institutions within the economy, can create credit, if you like, out of thin air. But I want to argue, and that I want to argue that is a very good thing. It's fortunate that we have a developed monetary system that enables us to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, so what I learned was that it, we create credit every time we apply for a loan. 
Um, and uh, this is a, therefore a kind of a democratic process because it's when firms and individuals apply for loans that credit is created and it is then injected into the economy and that generates income and revenues and savings and deposits. So savings are a consequence of credit. They are not used to finance credit. They're not f the banks don't have savings in their in their vaults, which they then lend on to borrowers. On the contrary, all the banks have in their in their vaults, if you like, is the institutional power given to them by the central bank and the state to issue credit. And uh, they, when they issue credit, when they offer a loan to someone, <clears throat> of course, it's not a straightforward affair of just entering numbers into a computer, or they, they do that as well. The borrower also has to provide collateral, you know, uh, a, a, a collateral, an asset uh, to guarantee, as a guarantee, plus the borrower has to promise to pay, sign a contract, which is underpinned again by the criminal justice system, and has to apply a rate of interest on that loan over a period of time. So this is the process that occurs for the creation of new money. And it is on the one hand a great public good, is what I argue. It's like the sanitation system. It is the thing that enables us to do what we can do. On the other hand, if it's managed by private authority as opposed to public authority, then there's the risk which we've already enduring that the private sector will run away with those powers and create too much credit and not generate enough and not invest that credit into productive activity that generates income for the repayment of the debt. And we then get a massive imbalance of too much debt and not enough income to repay it. And then the system becomes unstable and volatile and eventually it'll blow up. So management of this wonderful system that we call our monetary system this great public good, is just like we have to manage the sanitation system. In my view, we can't privatise the sanitation system because you can't trust the private sector to maintain it and to keep it stable and to keep it clean and healthy. And in exactly, But we don't manage the, the financial system. We don't manage the monetary system. Instead, it is managed by something called the invisible hand. And for me, that is why it is out of control. That's why it creates too much credit that's why it aims credit at speculative activity, not productive activity, and that's why we have too high levels of debt. So instead of it being a system which is supporting society's needs, instead of being the servant of the real economy, it has become the master of the real economy, and as such, it fails to serve the, the interests of society and indeed of the ecosystem. Mm. Do we need uh, less credit or is it more important that the credit and debt that is created is invested in productivity? As you, I, What of? I would argue is that we need less speculative credit. We need less credit that's going into gambling, gambling on whether London house prices or Stockholm house prices will rise forever. So therefore throwing money at a finite asset like a Stockholm property in, invariably inflates the value of that asset, which is why housing costs have gone through the roof here in Sweden, as they have in Britain. Um, that is gambling, essentially, And we should not, the government should not be allowing that to happen. Instead, the government should be saying to the banks, if you want a license to be a bank, to issue credit, then you have to ensure that the credit is aimed at 
productive activity that creates employment, because as we all know from our own experience, employment generates income, which can then be used to repay the debt. But because we've let it go, we've let it let the private sector rip, if you like, and also because for them it's much more profitable to lend speculatively because then they can charge high rates of interest on that. But the higher the rate of interest, the less likely the debt will re be repaid. This mm. is what Keynes argued very powerfully in his general theory of employment interest and money. He believed strongly that interest had to be managed by the authorities to keep it low. Okay. Can you say, just because concretely we are speaking very much about yeah. housing uh, and uh, in Sweden, Yeah. Uh, would you say what more are the conditions which has created this bubble? Some would say bubble, but yeah. I mean the price has gone up really yeah. quickly and also I guess in London, but what, what are the other conditions who has created this uh, well, so, except for yeah. a, a big demand <laughs> well there i you know the, argue, the uh, traditional economists argue that the prices have gone up because there's a shortage of supply and there's huge demand i disagree with that analysis i think there's a there is of course a shortage of supply but because there's an excess of credit that's why the prices have gone up so the point is that the reason they've gone up is because of quantitative easing so the really important thing to understand is that The central banks can create, if you like, credit for the macro economy, for big institutions and so on, but they can only do it in exchange for assets. And the effect of what the QE has done is to raise asset prices, whereas real prices in wages and the prices of goods and services in the real economy have not been affected by QE. Mm. And QE means the Quantity. central banks is uh, buying yes. assets in the state, actually. Yeah. So, just to well, they're buying it, assets yeah. in the market. They're buying yeah. both private assets and public mm. assets. To stimulate the economy. Uh, that's the, that was the theory. Mm. And after trillions, $13 trillion dollars is the latest estimate. I think it's actually higher. It's had no impact on the economy. Why? Because those that money has been aimed at existing assets like works of art, racehorses, property, land, uh, existing assets, and it's not been aimed at creating new assets. And so, as a result, you know our economy has become incredibly imbalanced. Mm. So, what are you? I think this might be also. Um, um, Related to uh, the proposal of the Green New Deal, yeah. Uh, so, what are your concrete like um, proposals? How, so, how to uh, regulate this lending and spending? Yeah. <laughs> so, there's only two ways we can finance this. We can finance it from credit or from existing savings. Now, uh, you, you know, our pension funds, for example, are, are existing savings, but our banks can create credit as well. Now, my argument is that the sums of money that we need are very large. Some people speculate that we need about $62 trillion. That's the OECD argues. Others argue that we need $90 trillion. That's globally. To to reinvest in a climate? To, or to, to transform the, the yeah. uh, climate to ensure that we shift from carbon okay. to renewable mm. energies. Yes. Mm. For us to do that is going to be very expensive, right? And there's not $90 trillion of savings in the bank. Right, but we there is the capacity to create ninety trillion dollars, but for, we've got to create that in a way which makes that sustainable. And for me, that means we have to effectively create it for employment. We have to learn to be more self-sufficient, 
And I, the, the model I use is I say we have to grow our own green beans instead of importing them from Canada, uh, Kenya. So that means that we therefore have to invest locally and we have to invest, in, if you like, in employment. We've got to be doing, first of all, growing our own food, uh, making things here and employing people to do that, but also probably using employment to create education, to do caring, to undertake caring, to make be creative. And all of these non-carbon consuming activities we can finance through uh, this, the, the existing monetary system. So we've, we've got to aim, in my view, the money that we need at employment, at what at retrofitting our housing, for example, to make them more energy efficient and so on and so forth. So I say that the capacity to do that is within the limits of the monetary system, if it's well managed. The, the, the limits on it are ecological limits, but also physical our own physical capacity and also the limit of our own intelligence. You know, I don't know if we have got the intelligence to manage this uh, transformation of the economy away from fossil fuels. Those are the genuine finite limits that we faced. But our monetary system was designed to enable us to do what we can do if we manage it properly. It's, you know, in that sense, it's, it, it needn't be finite because it's a social construct, because it's a, it's a promise to pay, it's a social relationship. We should be able to use it to, to manage those finite resources, which are the Earth's assets, basically. Mm. Um, and so, do, do you need to do this at a global level, or could one country or the EU or the US decide to, to um, all by themselves do this transformation? Yeah, no, I, I think what I think is really important is I believe that countries should have policy, what economists call policy autonomy, the ability to determine what do we need here in Sweden? What are our per particular conditions and our particular experience? You know, we have a lot of water here in the city. London doesn't have the same kind of blah. So there are... There, so I would like to see localized and participative decision making, democratic decision making at when I say national, I mean at a level which is possible to hold the people making those decisions accountable. I know some countries are too small to do it entirely on their own and they may want to form a regional block, say many countries in Africa couldn't do it on their own. But I believe that actually the the state and and for democratic persons purposes, the boundaries of the state are an important element in the way in which we go about this because, you know, we, if we want to make policy, for example, around pensions, around uh, green energy, all of that, there are boundaries to that policy, in my view. I, I don't want the Americans to make that policy for the Brits and I don't want the Swedes to have to have their decisions made by the British and I don't think Africans should have the North dictate to them what, how they should manage this, this transition. It's got to be a transition. Mm. But, thinking, but they should yeah. have the autonomy to do that. And under the current system, they don't have that autonomy. They've be, they, it's like Europe. Europe has been stripped of the ability to run its own monetary system. Countries are being stripped of the power to have their own monetary system, their own banking systems. Instead, you know, there's a bank called the European Central Bank which dominates all of these countries. And it's that and the fact that that bank is unaccountable to the people of Europe that, in my view, is the cause of the unrest in Europe. 
So I I'm, so under the current rules and system, it wouldn't be really possible for Sweden to go ahead with a Green New Deal all by ourselves. No, I no. think I mean Sweden has her own currency and has her own central bank. She's like Britain in that sense. It's harder for Greece or for Portugal because they don't have their own monetary system that can respond to their own local conditions. But we have that. So there's perfectly possible for for Sweden to be, if you like, self-sufficient in its own financing. You see, if you finance your activities in your own currency, uh, you know, your central bank has the power to create that currency and to manage that currency. If you have to use somebody else's currency, if you have to use the dollar, you are, if you like, um, the victim of whatever policy the Americans employ and use to maintain the value of the dollar. So, I, And I'm against that because I think that's a kind of imperialism. I would like to see African countries have their own banking system, their own institutions and their own money and therefore address their own particular problems. Now, they'll want to import technology and so on, so they do need foreign currency for that. And we should help them with that. But as far as possible, I'm in favor of self-sufficiency of different states and because we've got to be accountable, democratic, participatory in the way we address this transition to ensure that it's the transition is fair and just. Mm. But you, I mean, I, you are also like yeah, skeptical about how capital is uh, able to move freely. So wouldn't that yes. be a problem if Sweden or the UK decide we will have a Green New Deal or by ourselves that yes. the capital would flee and punish the yes. economy? Or so the question is, we we live in a world of capital mobility at the moment. We've allowed uh, companies like Amazon, Apple, and uh, and Google to be able to just move their money wherever they like and, if possible, to take it away from wherever it may be taxed and put it somewhere else. That system, in my view, has to end. We have to manage flows of capital across borders because we need to do that in order to be able to have policy autonomy at home. In order yeah. to be able, you know, so this in has order to come first, actually. Yes, that, that has to, to come first. Regulate the, uh, the flow, flow of capital yeah. across borders. And that has to be in order for us, for example, to tax these big corporations for a start. You know, we can't tax them if, if they can f- fly to Panama and leave their money there. So, so. For all those reasons, the management of capital, cross-border capital flows are absolutely essential to the transformation of the economy and the ecosystem, yes. Mm. You were talking before about the financial crisis and I heard you uh, have been saying at the lecture earlier today that um, actually the the governments, or you were taking the US as an example, actually they didn't regulate the financial sector um, even the yeah. f- even though people really maybe expected that uh, how come i mean would you say that they actually didn't regulate at all or or would you say um, and and if they didn't like what uh, what was the argument did they feel they couldn't do it or they didn't want to do it or so there's a simple uh, answer to that question which is that wall street has got big money in its pockets and basically bribed the regulators and in, in a very crude way that's a big part of the answer The other part of the answer is that they, the economists who dealt with it really didn't understand the system. And that's one of the reasons why it was so hard to know where and how to regulate. Um, and the third reason is that, um, that the politicians and the public were ignorant and didn't know what was happening and didn't understand what was happening. And it's easy for us to understand, if you like, 
the tangible economy, the economy that we deal with on a daily, I mean, even trade. You know, we drink uh, free trade coffee and it's something we have. But the flow of money across borders is invisible to us. And so we, we haven't understood the system. Uh, so this failure of understanding on both the public, the political, at a political level, and also at an academic level was one of the reasons why we didn't really know how to handle this. Plus, there's no doubt that a lot of lobbying went on and everybody said, if you dare to touch the system, it'll crash again or whatever. I don't know what they said, but they mm. certainly succeeded. Now, there has been some tinkering at the margins of uh, regulation of, for example, high street banks, the banks that we see on a day-to-day -day basis. So the 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 system has now moved into what is known as the shadow banking system, which is, as it explains by that term, in the shadows. And we know that the regulators know that they don't know what is happening in that sector. Uh, and we know that, for example, big companies like BlackRock, who look after $6.5 trillion of our pensioners and pensions and savings, cannot put their money into a high street bank, right? Because that would be too risky, you know, for a start, it wouldn't be guaranteed. They have to find other ways of protecting the value of that money over time. And so they've become, if you like, sort of banks. And they exchange the cash that they have scooped up from pension funds and so on. They exchange it for bonds, which are offered to them by those who need cash. And that exchange takes place. And they're therefore acting, if you like, as bankers in the shadow banking system. Can you, yeah. Can you just explain why they can't invest in the high street banks, which are the official traditional banks? Well, if you've got six and a half trillion dollars, try putting that in a bank. Okay. What's going to happen? You know, you, we know that you know the, the government guarantees a certain amount of mm. money, but, but if that bank, much. if that bank turns out to be Swedbank and gets into difficulties, and uh, the regulators um, start playing with it and close it down, you're in trouble, basically, mm. or the bank itself might collapse. It's a very risky thing. I mean, I don't believe that there should be any institution managing six and a half trillion dollars of the world's savings. Mm. And I don't believe that any private sector should be doing that. But it's already the case that these huge asset management funds are now managing enormous quantities of our savings, right, that have come from our incomes and so on over time. And the way that for them to keep the value of those. So cash has no value. What you want to do is turn your cash into an asset which generates income. So, you know, it's like saying I've got cash, I buy a property and then I rent it out. And then I both have the value of the asset and I get income every month from the property. So they want to invest in bonds especially government bonds, which gives them income over time, over 30 years or 50 years. And this is good for their business if, if they have to pay out in 50 years' time. The problem is, thanks to austerity and thanks to the fact that governments are cutting back spending, there's a shortage of safe assets in the world, which is why money is flowing out of government bonds and into other assets like property, horse racing, works of art. And all of the prices of those things have risen. Because there's nowhere for all this money to go. And and that's made worse by austerity. It's made worse by the fact that governments are not issuing bonds, governments like Sweden. And then it's made worse by the fact that because we've had a, a debt crisis in countries like Sweden, people are not – people, individuals and firms are not investing and that's not generating income in the economy – 
And so the economy is shrinking, prices are falling, the central banks can't raise the inflation rate. We live in a deflationary era. And uh, the worry is we've accumulated debt and the government has made a very determined effort to contract the economy further by cutting government spending, as well as the cuts that are happening in private spending. And the combination of uh, the private contraction of investment and the public contraction of investment is giving us the conditions for a crisis because the economy is weak, inflation is low, Uh, And inflation is low means prices are low, means wages are low, which means people don't have enough income to repay their debt if they're firms or individuals. And that poses a fundamental problem to the financial system ultimately too. So are you predicting a new crisis? I'm saying that austerity is helping to further exacerbate imbalances. Mm. And I hear economists in the United States and around the world screaming at the European politicians and economists and central bankers and saying, you must start investing and spending in your economies. And the shouting is mainly aimed at Germany, but of course it's also aimed at countries like Sweden, who are deliberately contracting their economies at a time when, to prevent crisis, we should be investing in and generating income and employment in our economies. So Europe is the worst. uh, Yeah, and that's because of the idea of austerity which has taken hold here and is so dangerous all right interesting i wanted to um, ask one last question actually and it's about your role uh, for as an advisor for the labor party i just yeah. wanted you to say something about what you more exactly are doing and what you hope to achieve Right. Well, I'm advising them on the Green New Deal. I wrote a chapter in John McDonnell's book that came out last year before the hoo-ha around uh, the Green New Deal, on the Green New Deal, and discussing with them, um, I mean, they don't always, I have to tell you this very plainly, they don't take my advice always, (laughs) but um, Jeremy Corbyn uh, hired me as an advisor very early on, and he's surrounded, uh, and I think this is the very good news about the British Labour Party, is that the politicians have surrounded themselves with some really good economists. Should, uh, if I'm Piketty so, also, I read, no? Piketty um, was uh, also involved in the beginning, okay. but he got he was very busy. But there's people like Mariana Matsukato, Joe Stiglitz, for example. Yeah. So, um, and, and this is very good because the British Labour Party has historically not taken interest in financial monetary policy theory and policy. So this is um, in our view. And it doesn't mean to say that we have big influence with the party and Mm. that they listen to us all the time. But it does mean that the debate around economic policy in Britain at the moment is very interesting. Are you a Labour supporter yourself? I am, yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for coming here. And Petfor? Pleasure. Thank you very much for the time. Thanks Elsa. Hej Lisa Pelling här. Vad kul att du lyssnar på våra poddar. Hoppas att du också tar chansen att gå in på vår hemsida och läsa alla artiklar, reportage, ledartexter som finns där. Kolla gärna också på sidan hur du kan stötta vår verksamhet. Och du prenumererar väl redan på vårt nyhetsbrev.